you go and you, uh, you know, put, put in your, your name and your party, party of five or whatever. And so you're on the waiting list and you're, you're standing around waiting. Okay, 10 minutes go by. No big deal. We're, we're all still enjoying each other. Everything's going good. And 20 minutes go by. Okay, I'm, I'm not really enjoying this anymore. 30 minutes go by. I'm starting to get a little hungry. <laughs> the kids are starting to get a little unsettled and unruly. It's getting painful. 40 minutes go by. Staring a hole through the hostess there, you know. 50 minutes go by, an hour goes by, and you start talking. This is, this is what I, I'm curious if you've ever said. I wonder if they forgot about us. Because I know we were here before that group of people that got sat 20 minutes ago. I wonder if they forget. Should I go up and, and ask the hostess if they've forgotten us? You know, and uh, th that's just such an interesting situation. And I'm hoping that you can resonate with it. Because patience is not a virtue that I personally enjoy exercising. That's probably true for you. If I have something I'm excited for, I don't like waiting for it. And that, that, that problem is multiplied when I start to be in pain. So like with the restaurant, okay, I'm hungry now. Okay, the kids are starting to go crazy now. But then that pain becomes almost unbearable when I start to wonder, is this ever gonna end? Did, did they forget to actually write us down on that list? And because I mean, all these other people are getting seated. And I mean, that's when patience becomes a real problem. When we don't even know if there's an end in sight. Am I just gonna, they going to be closing down the restaurant and we're still sitting here? I don't know. We come and think about the Exodus. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, there was the Exodus. The greatest display of God's redemptive power up until the cross was the Exodus. Amazing. Amazing joy inducing hope inducing the exodus but we need to understand the exodus did not come quickly the people had to wait a long time and that waiting was, was uh, you know exacerbated by the pain the suffering the sorrow that they felt in this slavery in this persecution uh, by pharaoh and then that pain becomes almost unbearable when the situation just seems hopeless. We're stuck in this forever. That's what they're going through. But what I want to show you today from Exodus 2 and what I think God wants to show you today from Exodus 2 is that our point of view is often very different from God's point of view. What, what we see, what we're experiencing and our interpretation of, of our circumstances and what God sees and God's interpretation are often very different. And I, I asked the question yesterday in my email um, for this worship service, what if we could know without a doubt that even in our waiting, God was working? What if we could be absolutely sure that that Yes, we're having to be patient. Yes, it's painful, but God is doing something amazing, something far better, and that he will make this waiting entirely worth it. What if we could know that? Wouldn't that make a difference 
in our lives? Wouldn't that make a difference as we're having to be patient? Wouldn't that make a difference in our pain? Wouldn't that make a difference uh, when, when others sin against us and the way we respond to them? Wouldn't that even make a difference when we make foolish mistakes and say, oh no, have I messed it all up? What if we could know for sure that God not only can work around these things, but he works through these things to accomplish his purposes. I want to draw your attention first uh, to actually uh, one verse back uh, from Exodus chapter two, verse uh, chapter one, verse 22. I'll put it up there on the screen. This is kind of where we're beginning today. This is the context of, of, of the whole story of Exodus chapter two. It says, then Pharaoh commanded all his people. So Pharaoh commands the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Just to kind of bring you up to speed there, Pharaoh um, already has been trying to thin out the Israelites, if you will. So he placed heavy, crushing burdens on them with the slavery, treating them ruthlessly, hoping that that would, you know, start to make some pass away and make their reproduction slow down. But to his dismay, they multiplied all the more. Then he uh, tells the Hebrew midwives, hey, when, when the, the, the Hebrew women are having a child, if you, go, if you see that it's a son, secretly end that child. Now, we know the Hebrew midwives did not obey that command, so those child, children lived. We know that um, Israel again starts multiplying all the more, and even those Hebrew midwives were given families, the Bible says. So... Pharaoh's plan of slavery and of this uh, midwifery murder um, is failing. And so here's what he does. He says, okay, since the, the Hebrew midwives wouldn't do it, I'm going to charge my own people. I'm going to uh, have the Egyptians take care of this. If you see a, a Hebrew son, a, a child that, that is a, a boy of the, the Israelites, Throw them into the Nile. I mean, this is a crazy law. This is, he's giving them permission to grab a baby boy out of the arms of its mother and throw it into this great river. It's horrific. We should be horrified by what we're reading, by this command from Pharaoh. And this is what they were living through. I mean, can you even comprehend that? That, that if you're walking down the street, if you're going to the grocery store, that someone could say, oh, that looks like a boy, and grab that child out of your arms and go throw it in a river. I mean, that's horrific. But by the end of uh, chapter 20, or sorry, chapter 2, let's look at their situation. That's the bottom verse on the screen, but uh, verse 23, I'll just read the first half of the verse. It says, during those, those many days, the king of Egypt died. So the old Pharaoh died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. See, what happens here, and, and we'll talk about this more later, is evidently they were hoping, okay, when this Pharaoh dies, when this king of Egypt dies, maybe our burden will be lifted. Maybe this will be a merciful king. But as we see... That wasn't true. It says, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out 
for help. They're having to wait a long time. It is painful what they're experiencing during their waiting. And as we'll talk about later, kind of their their last glimmer of hope, maybe this next king will be better. When that hope is dashed, they groan. It's, It's all over now. This is what what things were like for the Hebrew people, for the Israelite people. This was their perspective on their situation. This was their understanding of their circumstances. Make no mistake, they hadn't read the book of Exodus. (laughs) They didn't know what was going to happen. But what I want to do today is walk through... Exodus, I want to say Ephesians, Exodus chapter 2, and show you the human perspective, what they were really in real time experiencing, the sins of people, the failures, the sorrow, the suffering. But then I want us to look at God's perspective. I want to show uh, what what God was doing in the midst of those things. And I'll, I'll tell you, just as I have been studying this, my, my mouth has several times just opened up and dropped and said, oh, he did it again. Like I, I, did, I had never even thought of that times that God was using these things for the good of the people and his glory. Before we dig in, let's, let's uh, take a, a moment for a word of prayer, though, because we do need God's help um, to see these things and feel these things. Father God. You are strong, you are mighty, you are all sufficient, but we are weak, needy, and fragile, God. We have moments that we feel like we could take on the world, and everything's great and everything's happy, but then there are those times, God, when the burdens of this life, the situations, the sins just feel too great to bear. And so, God, I pray that you would use your word today. And I I just believe that's what this is for. This chapter is to show us the pattern of how you are working in this world, despite our perception of things. And so, God, I do pray that these realities would put a smile on our face right now as we hear them and think about them. But I, I also pray that when we're going through our own difficult lives, that we would recognize this didn't just happen for Israel. This is happening for us as well. Oh God, we need you today. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So there are uh, basically, I I would consider it three major events that happen in uh, Exodus chapter 2. And so I want to give you each of those, again, looking at the human perspective of what's going on, but then looking at God's perspective, the divine perspective. The first event is an unusual adoption, an unusual adoption. And I I thought later that probably should have been uh, an unhappy and unwanted adoption um, because Moses' parents certainly didn't want it. But let's let's look at that in uh, Exodus Uh, I guess we can start again in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, but then following through in chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Exodus 1, 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, this, this again, may seem like a happy story on the surface, but this is, this is horrific. We, we have some incredibly terrible things going on, some incredibly wicked things going on. I just want to show you uh, from the human perspective the things we have going on. We have Pharaoh's murderous command. He commands his people to throw the Hebrew boys into the water. Then we have Egypt's sinful obedience. Evidently, the Egyptians are to some degree obeying this command. How do I know that? Well, the mom hid Moses for three months, and then when she could hide him no longer, she puts him in a basket in the river. Evidently, this was a very real threat. Evidently, this wicked command from Pharaoh was being carried out by the Egyptian people. If there was ever a reason for civil disobedience, this was it. No, we're not going to kill the Hebrews' uh, children. We're not going to do that. We're going to throw their children into the Nile. But they were obeying. And while Moses does, uh, you know, get saved and Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh's uh, daughter takes pity on him and things like that. I mean, think about this. The parents lose their child. The mother gets to nurse Moses um, during his, his time until he's weaned, which, by the way, in their culture was um, anywhere between three and five years was about how long they would nurse a child. If I were Moses' mother, I'd be shooting for five years, just saying. But there came a day that, I mean, just think about this. There came a day that they had to say goodbye to their son. I mean, this is horrific from a human point of view. 
This is absolutely horrific. We have the wickedness of Pharaoh, the sinful sinful obedience of the Egyptian people, and the sadness of the parents having to give away their child to become someone else's child. They had no desire to give their child away. These things were really happening to real people, real experiences. But we do need to see things from God's perspective The first thing we might notice is Moses gets to live, right? We could pretty easily overlook that, but just think about it. No one is going to take a baby out of a mother's arms and throw it in the Nile if that's Pharaoh's daughter's baby. Someone might come up and say, oh, that's a Hebrew boy. I I got it. No, 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 no. This is Pharaoh's daughter's child. She is adopted. I'm simply nursing the child. And so Moses gets to live when many other uh, Hebrew boys were not. The second thing we see here is that Moses was raised by God-fearing Israelites. So his, his first, again, I would guess about five years, his first five years were spent with, with his parents, with uh, Moses' parents that evidently love God, fear God. They, they wouldn't obey. They wouldn't let their child go. They take these drastic steps by the way, the basket thing in the river is interesting. Um, from my understanding, the, the, the idea there is by, by putting the child in the Nile, in, in the basket, was saying, okay, God, you do it. It was, it was an act of faith, not an act of, um, of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Putting up the white flag. Anyway, surrender, not an act of surrender. Thank you, sir. Um, this was an act of faith. So these are God-fearing parents and you say, well, well, why is that important? Well, they are going to need to have, Israel is going to need to have a person who knows their language, knows their people, knows their customs, and knows their God, who knows the promises that has been made to their people. Because later, this person is going to represent Israel, right? By the way, again, the, the people who would have been originally reading Exodus knew what happened. Because the, the book wasn't written until after the Exodus happened. So they, they knew what happened. So they, even when they were reading it, they, they're, they're able to put these pieces together. He is raised to know the people, know their God, and know the promises. But in addition to that, as, as terrible as this situation is, Moses is then brought up in Pharaoh's house. He's brought up in Pharaoh's Household. So, uh, again, estimating from about the age of five to 40 years old, he spends basically as an Egyptian in uh, Pharaoh's household with um, Pharaoh's daughter there as his mother. So, why is that a good thing? How, how is that the purposes of God? Well, let me ask you this. What if after the service today, the, the U.S. government were to walk up to you um, in the parking lot and say, hey, we need you to go to Mexico as an ambassador. Oh, and by the way, you need to go tomorrow. <laughs> You'd say, whoa, 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 wait, I can't do that. I, I, I wouldn't be able to accomplish anything good in, in Mexico as an ambassador. They say, well, why not? You'd say, well, number one, I don't know their language 
<laughs> you know, probably learned Spanish, maybe had Spanish one and two in high school, but I don't know Spanish. You say, well, I don't know their customs there uh, in Mexico. Like they, they just have different customs than we do. So I'd probably spend more time offending them than actually accomplishing anything. And I don't know how their government works, so I wouldn't know how to get anything done for the United States. You, you can't send me there. I, I, I don't have the skills, I don't have the abilities necessary to go. You seeing the connection here? Moses, much later, is going to be the ambassador of Israel to the Egyptians. He is going to need to know their language fluently. He's going to need to know their customs and their culture. And he's going to need to know their government. Who do you talk to? How do you talk to him? How do you get things done? I mean, again, think about it. He actually is more acquainted with all of these things than the average Egyptian would have been. Because he not only grew up in Egypt, but in the household of Pharaoh. This is pretty crazy. Like, I don't know how else you would make this happen to have an Israelite who knows about the God, fears the God of Israel, and yet has learned so much about Egypt, the inner workings at an intimate level. So from a human perspective, all of this looks incredibly bad. Pharaoh's edict, his command, Egypt's obedience to that wicked command, this sad uh, separation of the parents to their child. But God was doing something. God was preparing a savior who would love his people, the Israelites, but who would be well acquainted with Egypt. It's interesting when we look at things from God's point of view, isn't it? It's, it sort of changes the flavor of that difficult situation when we see that, oh, God was doing something crazy, unimaginably crazy in the midst of this. But we move on. It, it obviously doesn't stop there. Uh, the second major event we see is an unwelcome training program. An unwelcome training program. Look at me with, at verse, look at with me uh, verses 11 to 22. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, again, about 40 years old, we learn in Acts 7. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. By the way, you see the way he's identifying with his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, 
an Egyptian delivered us out of delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, "Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread." And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, "I have been a sojourner in a foreign land." That, that's our, our second major set of events here. Again, from a human perspective, uh, things are not very good. I think first we have um, first we have Moses' foolish plan. Now, Hebrews especially tells us in Hebrews eleven that Moses was acting in faith when he did this to try to. Uh, deliver his his uh, fellow hebrews to fellow fellow israelites but it was foolish okay it was foolish uh for moses to try to try to do this um think about it i mean he's not going to accomplish much is one guy moses going to eliminate all of the egyptian enemies all the 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 uh brutal egyptian slave master no he's not gonna do that like i mean so what did he accomplish by killing this one Egyptian to protect the Israelites. Secondly, he's going to get in trouble. I mean, this is not okay to do this. He's going to get even the, the Israelites in trouble. I mean, it's not good. But finally, the Israelites may not want help from him. You can kind of see it uh, in the wording there of uh, the, the Israelite. He said... Um, he said, who, um, who made you a prince and a judge over us? I mean, that, that's, that's kind of a backhanded remark. Like, do you think you're the prince just because you, you live in Pharaoh's household? You, you may be a, a Hebrew, but you're not one of us. And so we, we see even there he was rejected by his own. This is the Israelite rejection. He comes out and tries to save them, but the Israelites reject him. And by the way, how do you think... Uh, this thing became known like to, to Pharaoh. My, my guess is that the, the Israelites uh, are the ones who told on Moses. Someone got a sec, an extra portion of bread that day for, for telling on him maybe, but he's rejected. And then we see Pharaoh's hypocritical vengeance. It says, um, <clears throat> it says, uh, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Okay, the Pharaoh is having the Hebrew children systematically murdered, and now Moses kills one Egyptian who's beating an Israelite, and oh, how could he do that? that that's hypocrisy, okay? <laughs> Pharaoh is a mass murderer, and Moses tries to protect an Israelite. Shouldn't have done it, but... And that, that's hypocrisy, and that's, that's just unbridled anger. How dare you rise up against my people? And then finally, we see the shepherd's cruelty, right? Moses has to flee uh, Egypt. He goes to the land of Midian. He's sitting by a well, and these uh, seven daughters um, of a man come up to water their flock. But then some cruel shepherds come up and start making trouble for these women, and so it says Moses stood up and rescued them. 
I mean, this is just another sinful group of men uh, coming into the picture and you say, well, how could that possibly be used for good? Well, that again is our perspective. But let's think about this from God's perspective. First, Moses now gets a home and a wife, and I could have added even a child. Think about it. If it hadn't been for him fleeing, having to flee out into Midian, if it hadn't been for these cruel shepherds making him have to stand up and be the hero, he wouldn't have been invited into Rule's house and then given a daughter in marriage. And then he's brought into, you know, the family enterprise there. Like, I mean, he's kind of got a place. He's still a foreigner, as you can see by the name he gives his son. She gave birth to his son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. He still considers himself a foreigner, but he has a home. He has a wife. He has a son. This is very interesting. And I would say, even secondly, thinking bigger picture, greater picture, he was getting training as a shepherd in the wilderness. So I, I, I know you noticed there, I mean, the reason he met these seven daughters is because they came to draw water for their father's flock. So this is a family that has a flock and they have to shepherd these animals. And so Moses marries into a shepherd family. I know that the father there was also a priest at Midian, but evidently they are also uh, shepherds. And so he is brought into that family enterprise as a shepherd. Now in general, if you've been living in Pharaoh's household and you become a shepherd, that's not a good thing. <laughs> but if you are going to be shepherding people, millions of people, the Israelites for 40 years, you're going to need some shepherding experience. I don't know if we still use the term anymore, but I am guessing that while Moses lived in Pharaoh's household, he had what we might call soft hands. He had no calluses on his hands. He hadn't been working. He hadn't been leading. He certainly hadn't been shepherding. But here in Midian, as a 40-year-old, he's learning to shepherd a skill he will need. And not only to shepherd, but he's out in the wilderness. He's learning how to live in the wilderness. There are Midian there, but yeah, it's like kind of in the wilderness out there. He's learning the tricks. He's learning how you shepherd a large group in a wilderness. I mean, this is an unwelcome training plan for Moses, but it's an absolutely necessary and brilliant training plan for Moses. It's brilliant. So you have a Hebrew who fears God because he was raised by his God-fearing parents up to five years old. You have a man who knows the inner workings of Egypt, the language, the culture, the government. I mean, what, what the pharaohs do, what the kings do. He knows how these things work. But then he also has the skills and abilities to shepherd a large group in the wilderness. This is an unwelcome but an absolutely necessary and brilliant training plan from God. Again, we should just say, oh, I can't believe that that's what God was doing. Moses wouldn't have seen it that way, right? The Israelites are not gaining hope because Moses has become a shepherd out in Midian. Like this isn't something that's exciting anyone, but we can see because we have God's perspective from God's word that God was working, God was preparing, God was doing something incredible to serve his good purposes 
through the foolishness of Moses, through Pharaoh's wickedness, through Egypt's sinful obedience, through the cruelty of these shepherds, through the sorrow of giving a baby away, through the the hardship of having to leave Pharaoh's house and go out into the wilderness, through all of those things, God was working something amazing. There is one final event I want us to look at here. It will be quick on this, but I think it's super important. And again, we could miss these things and uh, we'd miss so much of what God has for us. But this is an unhoped for push to prayer. An unhoped for push to prayer because in, in verse 23, it takes the, the lens, the camera off of Moses and it turns it back on Israel, okay? Here's what's going on with the people of Israel. It says in verse 23, during those many months, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Again, we talked about this and that's why I call this an unhoped for push to prayer. They were hoping for relief. This was their one last chance at at their lives not being miserable and bitter. But it says there in, in the second half of verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of, people of Israel and God knew. By the way, that word knew um, isn't, isn't talking about mental knowledge. It's talking about engaging. It's talking about an intimate interaction. God is bringing himself into Israel's situation in an intimate, powerful way. This is the same word that's used of um, Adam knew his wife Eve. He didn't just know things about her. This is talking about he at the most intimate level engaged with his wife Eve and then they had uh, Cain and Abel and Seth. God knew, God engaged we got to see kind of what's working on, going on here, though. So you have the king that, that continued the cruelty. This new king continues the cruelty, and this just leaves Israel without hope. Another generation, another generation of slavery, of oppression, of persecution, of murderous plans. And in America, we don't even get this, right? We get a bad leader. We wait four years and hope that we get a, a better one. These guys are lifers. They, they, they become Pharaoh, they become king. They're there until the day they die. There's very little hope that anything will change for them. And what this does though, I wanna show you, is it causes Israel to finally cry out to God. Now there may have been some prayers along the way. I, I'm, I'm not saying no, none of the Israelites ever prayed to God for help, but this seems to be a corporate, a the nation of Israel, the people of Israel cried out to God with one another. But, but look at kind of the progression. If you look back um, in your Bible, it says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. That's a very natural response to a difficult situation, a very natural response to a painful circumstance. They groaned, but then that groaning led to them crying out for help. It was the pain, it was the hopes being dashed that pushed them to cry out for help. 
Uh, we see, by the way, I, I have it up there on the screen, that this was, I hear cry out and I say, well, who did they cry out to? Was it actually to God? We do see in 1 Samuel 12, 8, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. That's talking about Exodus 2, 23. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell into this place. Recognize the, the kind of the progression there. It was not until the people cried out for help that God sent the rescuer. This is a, a biblical pattern that God can do anything whenever he wants. Make no mistake. God does not need our permission to do anything in this world. But very often, very often, God is waiting for us, wanting us to pray before he asks to truly come to the end of ourselves, our own abilities, our own skills, our own wisdom, our own resources, and to say, God, I need you. And that is, again, the scriptural pattern is that God in that crying out, in response to that crying out, God answers. And that's exactly what we see here. Your father has cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and delivered them out of Egypt. I see this, by the way, a helpful verse, Psalm 50, God gives this promise, Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's often why he makes us wait until we, we come to the end of ourselves and pray to him is he wants us to glorify him, to put our eyes on him, to see that it was him that delivered us not ourselves, to see that it was God answering prayer, not just our circumstances finally, you know, getting better. Well, that was good luck. No, God doesn't want us to be thinking about good luck. He wants us to be thinking about his glory. You will glorify me when you cry out and I answer in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. This is a principle. But here's what uh, I want us to think about for a moment. It was God who got Israel to the point of prayer by allowing another wicked king to come into place. It's this sinful, wicked, wicked man that God uses to push his people to cry out. And then God uses that prayer to answer. And God sent Moses. But here's something incredible that we need to notice in all of this. We're going to find later in, um, in Exodus that Moses is 80 years old when he comes and confronts Pharaoh with his brother Aaron. 80 years old. So basically the events of Exodus chapter 2 are 80 years. What that means is from 80 years before, God had already been preparing a savior God had already been giving him all the training he would need to be the, 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 the deliverer of Israel, to go and stand uh, and represent God and to represent Israel. God had already been preparing him in every way, both as an ambassador and as a shepherd, 80 years before they even cry out to God. I love that. I love that, that through all that pain, through what, what is seemingly the absence of God, God was active. 
God was active in wondrous, again, brilliant ways. God was preparing this way of salvation through this man Moses that he is bringing. Now, it's not going to be Moses that delivers them. I just want to go ahead and get that out of the way. Uh, but God is going to use this man, the ways he has prepared him to deliver the people of Egypt. And it was 80 years in the making. From the human perspective, God was doing nothing. But from the divine perspective, God had been working at the very least this 80 years to prepare their Savior. Again, you think about the, the restaurant analogy we started with. Did they forget about us? Like we're struggling over here. We can know that God has not forgotten us. Because, you know, we, we, see, we only see things from our perspective, but from God's perspective, God is doing things. You say, but what about these terrible circumstances? Yes, God is going to use those terrible circumstances to bring about his good purposes. Well, what about these sins of these other people, the way they're treating me, the way they won't stop and I can't do anything about it? Yes, God is using the sins of other people to do what he wants in your life for your good, for his glory. Well, what about my foolishness? I've made mistakes. We see Moses made a mistake. He should not have killed that Egyptian. His heart was in the right place, but it was foolish. What about my foolishness? What about even my own sin? Yes, even in your foolishness, even in your sin, God is going to use it for your good and his glory. They will glorify me. But there is an aspect here that we can't forget. We need to cry out to God. The Israelites were brought to the end of themselves. They were brought to no hope at a human level. This, this new king, he's going to reign over us. He's going to continue oppressing us until they kill us all out. Cry out to God. One of the, the greatest examples of this um, is Romans 10, 13. And maybe this is where some of you are at today. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can cry out to this Savior I should mention, let me see. Yeah, we got time. <laughs> this pattern wasn't the point. That God was using uh, Pharaoh wasn't the point. That God was using the Egyptians and their sinful obedience wasn't the point. That God was using their foolishness, uh, Moses' foolishness wasn't the point. This was pointing to a greater deliverance. The leader of a greater exodus, wasn't it? Because there was one to come who would also be born into trying circumstances, you could say. There is one to come who would also have to flee for his life. There was one who came to save his people, but his people rejected him. There is one who would be betrayed. He would be one of the closest companions of this Savior, but he would betray him. And this is the one who would, in the end, at the hands of wicked men, be mocked, beaten, and crucified on a cross. You say, how could anything good come out of that? So much wickedness, so much sin, so many terrible circumstances. Friends, if all of those things had not happened, 
we would have no salvation. If, if at the hands of wicked men, Acts 2, um, both Acts 2 and Acts 7 <clears throat> c- cover this um, in, a, in a wonderful way. Sorry, I shouldn't have removed it from my sermon notes. shouldn't be trying to do this now. I won't. (laughs) That's good enough. In in both Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, and I I encourage you to look it up later, the the apostles say, uh, you know, multiple times, there were these wicked people doing these wicked things to Jesus, carrying out their wicked plans, but it was all the things that you, God, foreordained, that you planned. They were carrying out your plans in their wickedness. This is the pattern of the Bible, that yes, we live in a sinful world. Yes, we live in a cursed world where circumstances are are hard and terrible, but we have a good and powerful God. We have a wise God. We have a providential God that, that uses our circumstances, that uses the sins of people and our foolishness and even our sin for our good and his glory. Some of us need to call upon this Savior today. Again, I I don't want to miss that. We're hoping God will save us, but we don't cry out to him. If you have not trusted in Jesus today, this can be it. Call upon the name of the Lord. I can't save myself. I have no hope. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ Jesus, let us look at our circumstances differently. Let us not only see our human perspective. Let us know that God has his perspective and he's weaving something beautiful in our lives and in our pain and in our suffering for our good, his glory, and even the good of others around us. Let's pray. Father God, I am so thankful that we have such an amazing God to pray to. I'm so thankful that we have such an amazing God to trust in our circumstances, to trust in our trials and in our suffering, to know that we are not left alone, to know that it's not all pointless, but that you have a purpose. Oh God, let us be concerned with the bigger, the greater things, the ultimate story, the ultimate picture that you are painting in our lives, that though our times may be hard, we have difficult seasons, difficult struggles, that it will all be worth it because you are doing something greater. God, let us rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that you are working through them for our good and your glory. These things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.